We are continuing in our series in the book of Daniel, and we are up to Daniel chapter 7, where things start to get a little bit wild, <clears throat> as you'll see. Uh, there's a little bit of a turn here in the book, so I'm excited about this morning. I'm excited about um, what the Lord is going to do in our midst here. So we're going to be reading Daniel 7, the whole chapter. Uh, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up, follow along. It'll also be available up here on the screen to follow along. And if you are physically able to stand, would you mind standing to honor the reading of God's word? Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. 
So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and he shall be given into his hand. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we confess our own inadequacy, our own limitations of understanding, of sight. And so, Lord, we come and ask, like Elisha, who prayed for his servants, would you open his eyes to see. Lord, would you open our eyes to see the chariots of fire, to see that you are greater than all those around us, than all those who encamp against your people. Give us eyes to see what is true. Lord, to see you. Give us faith, we pray. Fill us with your spirit and with great courage and boldness to walk in your ways to the glory and the honor of your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated.
Well, the King's Speech certainly makes my list of favorite movies in the last 20 years. If you've seen it, you, you know that the film recounts the experience of Prince Albert, who in the 1930s was the second in line to the throne of the United Kingdom. And after his, his older brother, David, abdicated the throne uh, for his marriage, <clears throat> Bertie, as, as he was called in, in the film at least, I, I guess in real life, Bertie was uh, put into a difficult position. He struggled tremendously with a stammer. And so because of that, he dreaded the expectations uh, and the, the speaking engagements that came with a public position, right? A public figure. But now he was to become king. And so he sought to get help with his stammer. He worked through it. He went on to become King George VI, and he helped lead his people through World War II, through one of the darkest periods of the last century. And what I love, this is based on a true story, of course, what I love in particular about <clears throat> this film is that the prince is not, he's not lionized, you know? You see his, you see his flaws, you see his, his irritation, his frustration, his impatience at times, impatience with those around him, impatience with his own limitations. And you see his struggles with self-doubt. But in spite of all of that, he chooses courage. He chooses to work and to fight and to improve. He chooses to do the hard thing. And as painstaking as, as the process was, as vulnerable as he had to be being put in that position, he put his own comfort aside in order to do what was in the best interest of his country. And when you see that, you really see a king you can admire, a king that you respect, a king that's worth following. Well, in this series in the book of Daniel, we have been exploring how seeing God more clearly, seeing him for who he is and for what he does and how he's at work in this world, helps cultivate in us a resilient faith. It equips us, it empowers us to trust him and to live with, with boldness and courage in a challenging and confusing world. And so far throughout this series, we've reflected on God's faithfulness, his wisdom, his greatness, his worthiness, his sovereignty, his holiness. And then just last week, we looked at the fact that God is a living God, alive and active in this world. And, and now in this week and in the next week, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to look at roles or functions of God rather than specific attributes. And in this text this week, what we see is that God is king, that God is king. You know, the theme of God's kingdom and his dominion and his rule has, has been one that has run throughout this book. We've touched on in various places, but in this chapter, it is the central focus. And what we learn here is simply this, that God is our victorious king. He is our victorious king king. So we see two aspects of his kingship in this chapter. We're going to reflect on this morning that he is the reigning king 
and that he is the coming king. So we start with him as the reigning king. And as I mentioned here in this chapter, we experience a bit of a, a sea change in terms of content in this book. In Daniel 1 through 6, we have, we've been working through historical narrative. We've been looking through the kind of the life and times of Daniel and his friends, uh, everything that he's experienced from being sought out for counsel to facing uh, persecution, being thrown in a lion's den, being thrown in a fiery furnace. But now in Daniel 7 and on through, through the end of the book, through chapter 12, it's quite different. All of these chapters are about visions that Daniel himself had personally. It's kind of like a separate section in, in your journal, if you will, like the back pages of the journal where you're recording down the visions that you have experienced, things more personal to yourself. And these chapters fall under the category of apocalyptic literature, which commentator Ian Duguid provides this helpful summary about that genre. He says that biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, which is an age characterized by conflict and its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and the replacement by the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. This revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery and has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. End of quote. So, these chapters present visions that focus on future events. Sometimes they're near future events for Daniel, and sometimes they are future events uh, in the distant future, like things that will come at the end of an age. And sometimes they're mixed in between the two, right? And so because of that, Daniel 1 through 7 are some of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to interpret. And we get to tackle them this summer. Uh, that can lead to a lot of varying ways of understanding these visions. It can also lead to a lot of speculation and a lot of books that have been written about this, right? And so just a note about how we're going to approach this. We're generally going to avoid diving into all of the speculation about different nuances of these uh, interpretations, nor are we going to outline every single interpretation Instead, what we're going to do is just kind of each week just kind of briefly sketch what we understand to be the most persuasive take on each vision, but then spend our time focusing on what's clearly taught about who God is and about what he's doing in this world, who God is and what he's doing. And so in this chapter, Daniel recounts a vision that he had in the first year of King Belshazzar which this is likely his first year as co-regent with his father, which would have placed these events before the events of chapter 5 and 6, before the writing on the wall incident, before Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. He had this vision. And his first vision is pretty startling, right? Uh, you'd have a hard time sleeping after this one. Uh, Daniel, it starts off with Daniel seeing the winds from all over the earth stirring up the sea. And in ancient Near Eastern literature, including in the Bible, the, the sea is typically a depiction of chaos. It means that there's chaos. And so the, the winds stirring up the sea means that there's chaos happening in the world. 
And then one by one, he saw four beasts come out of the sea. The first looked like a lion, but had the wings of an eagle. The second was like a bear, but it was unequal in sides, and it had ribs hanging out of its mouth. It had just had lunch, I guess. The third was like a leopard, but with four heads and four wings. And then the final beast was the most terrifying of them all. It's not, it couldn't even be described as some kind of animal. It's just rightly understood as a monster. It's massive, had large iron teeth, claws of bronze, ten horns on its head, and everywhere it goes, it devours and it destroys. It's kind of like I picture something out of Stranger Things. That's what we have here. So thankfully, we are provided a little bit of insight into what these beasts are within the text itself. So Daniel asks someone who's among this multitude what this dream means, and they tell him that they represent four kings or four kingdoms that rise out, rise, rise up in the world. There's a good chance that these are the same kingdoms that are referenced back in Daniel 2, the, the kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the first vision that Daniel had to interpret. You remember the, the statue that was made of gold and silver and iron and, and bronze and iron, right? And so if that's the case, then these beasts likely represent the four empires of the ancient Near Eastern world from Daniel's time onward. The lion represents the Babylonian Empire. You know, the detail about the lion's wings being removed and it being uh, lifted up from off the ground and standing on two legs could really be understood to, to be describing the experience that Nebuchadnezzar had, where he was, was proud and grew in his power, right, and then he was humbled. And after a time of, his, of humility, he turned in repentance to the Lord and was restored. So that's likely representing the Babylonian Empire. And that would mean that then the bear represents the, the Medo-Persian Empire, which was imbalanced in power between the Medes and, and the Persians. And the ribs that are in its mouth could reference the uh, previous countries that it had defeated before it came and conquered the Babylonians. The third beast then you have is the leopard, which would likely represent the Greek empire, the Greeks. And of course, this was led by Alexander the Great, who became king of the, the Greek kingdom of Macedon and at the age of at 20, but then he conquered most of the known world by the time he was 32 years old, which really, you know, I'm 36. That makes me feel kind of like a slacker a little bit. <laughs> Uh, the wings could emphasize the, the speed at which he conquered. That's what Alexander's known for, is how quickly he took over the ancient Near Eastern uh, world. But then he also suddenly died, unexpectedly died. Theories about that, and perhaps he was poisoned. Who knows? So the four heads could represent the division of the Greek Empire after his sudden death, which would mean then that the final beast, at least in part, represents the Roman Empire the greatest empire in ancient Near Eastern history, history, it was unmatched, unrivaled in its power, in its dominion for centuries until the, the western part of it fell in the 5th century and the eastern part lasted until the 1400s, I believe. So, 
that's kind of a, an understanding historically what's happening here. But the visions were not simply a foretelling of these kingdoms that were coming. They're also a more general warning about the nature of the kingdoms of this world. That is to say that these terrifying creatures, the final one in particular, are meant to convey what one commentator calls the beastliness of history. This is something that Daniel and his friends had personal experience with, right? They experienced the injustices of being ripped from their family, taken from their homeland, of, of, of facing forced indoctrination by their captors, of being thrown into a furnace or into a lion's den because of their faith. But those kinds of atrocities were not unique to Daniel, nor were they unique to the ancient Near Eastern world. There's something of a universal testimony of the ghastly evils perpetuated by kingdoms of mankind throughout history. In fact, the 20th century was the bloodiest century of all time. We had these notions of enlightenment and modernity that we had risen above that, right? And they turned out to be completely false. More than 187 million dead just from wars alone in the 20th century. Two major world wars, numerous other international civil wars, cultural revolution in China, the Rwandan genocide, killing fields of Cambodia, on and on. It's not just nature that's red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson said. It's also mankind. So the history of the world's kingdoms is beastly. But this startling, beastly picture of human kings is contrasted with a stunning, divine picture of God the King. Daniel's gaze shifts from these horrifying creatures to an awe-inspiring look at the courts of heaven. And he sees and describes in vivid detail a picture of the Ancient of Days that is the one who has existed before time and space, the one who brought day itself into existence. He's clothed white as snow and his hair like pure wool. Before him are millions of servants. Around him are gathered people as far as the eye can see. And what does God do, this ancient of days do? He takes a seat on the throne. A throne that is surrounded by flames and set atop wheels, which just sounds kind of wild, right? But it's actually imagery that's familiar from Ezekiel. It depicts power and might. God's wrath against sin. And it says that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened that God will judge the deeds of the world with justice, which is the theme that we will end this series with in several weeks. 
And what we see here is that God reigns with complete knowledge, with unparalleled wisdom, with unlimited power, with ultimate authority. God is seated on the throne. And the God who sits on the throne and who will one day judge all the atrocities of mankind is adorned in clothing as white as snow. In other words, he's pure. He's undefiled. He's uncorrupted. He's perfect in goodness and purity. While there are kingdoms on earth that have dominion for a season, it's because God has granted it to them. And when it seems like this world is out of control, like injustice is prevailing, like chaos is reigning, we must remember that God's dominion is over all. That he rules with vision and understanding and purpose that is infinitely greater than ours. That the Lord our God reigns as king. And so this vision reveals to us a significant danger that we face today. It's the very thing that Daniel himself experienced. You saw in the end of this chapter. That is the danger of fear. You know, when you look at the brutality, when you look at the pure acts of evil that those in power have done around the world throughout history, it's easy to respond with fear. Fear that that will be us. Fear that that will be our experience. And this is the danger, to see the potential threats to our personal safety and to allow fear to silence our faith. Maybe the threat we fear is being disrespected, being demeaned, being ostracized. Maybe we fear being bullied in school for the little ones or mocked in our workplace. Maybe we fear being caught doing something that violates the cultural norms of our day and that being spread across the world through social media and we become the latest victim of cancel culture, right? Maybe we fear becoming a target of those who consider the Christian faith and values harmful and deserving of suppression. Maybe we fear the long-term consequences of going on the record and standing for truth. You know, we can look at the beasts of this world and think that the real danger is what they do to us. And that's true, in a way. But the real danger is not physical or emotional or material harm that we may experience for our faith. The real danger is allowing fear to paralyze our faith. It's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, danger that the church is wrestling with today. Fear of standing up for what is true. But we have to remember that what God wanted for Daniel and what he wants for us today is to put those fears into perspective. He wants us, the reason for this vision is he wants us to see beyond the beast and to see him. 
and to know in our hearts that he reigns over all. No matter how chaotic the world seems, no matter how terrifying the world seems, he reigns over all. David penned these words in Psalm 56 when he was in the hand of the Philistines. He said, You have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. And God, whose word I praise, and the Lord, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? David, when he's in the hands of his enemies, puts his trust in God. And he says, in God I trust. What can man do to me? So when we're tempted to give way to fear, to buckle beneath societal pressures opposed to faith, to run from the truth, we should take heart and take courage because we know the one who sits on the throne. Walter Sizek was a Polish-American Jesuit priest who served at a mission in Albertan, Poland, just before the beginning of World War II. And after the Soviets invaded his town, he decided to travel with a couple of other priests to go into the Soviet Union undercover, along with the refugees, to go with a labor camp so that he could minister to refugees um, secretly. He was caught, of course, by the Soviet police, and he spent 23 years in the gulags. Fifteen of those were hard labor spent in Siberia. And one of the books that recounts his story of surviving the horrors of that imprisonment he writes about how God sustained him through that time. One of the early chapters, just after the Red Army had invaded his town, he writes about how the mission that he was serving virtually disappeared overnight because of fear. His people were afraid to come. He wrote about how he himself struggled. He didn't know how to give counsel in the midst of this uncertainty, in the midst of this oppression. And in this chapter, he wrote this. He said, as the war tore apart the fabric of our once peaceful lives, my own included, I came to understand more clearly and in some small way this truth in all its terrible simplicity. Do not be anxious, therefore, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows what you need in all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God. We would survive, although the world around us had changed completely. We would go on today and tomorrow and the next day, picking up the pieces and working out each day our eternal destiny and our salvation. There would be a tomorrow and we would have to live in it. And God would be there. The church would survive, perhaps not exactly as we had known it at the mission, but the faith would survive among the people of God as it always survived in times of persecution. One thing only needed to be of great concern to us in the seeming upheaval and catastrophe. 
to be faithful to God and to look to Him in everything. We have a God who reigns. And we need not be afraid. We need not be anxious. But to trust Him and to look to Him. Secondly, see that we have a coming king. So while the, the imagery of the beasts uh, depicted the kingdoms that were to come in the near future and the de- general nature of the kingdoms of this world, there was also a, a specific warning for God's people here. The fourth beast, we're told, was the most fearsome of them all, right? Everywhere it went, it devoured, it destroyed, it crushed, it shattered. But there was something unique about it. On the top of its head, among the ten horns, arose another little horn. It says this little horn had eyes and a mouth. It could see and speak, and it did so more effectively, more powerfully than any others. And this little horn used its abilities to, to denounce God and to attack God's people. It said he, he spoke against the Most High. He made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And he wore out the saints of the Most High. It seems that the the point of this detail is that it's not only humanity in general that will face trouble because of the injustices of human kings, but the people of gods in particular will face hardship. And while this is going to happen throughout history, there will come a time that's unknown to us where God's people will be attacked. This is likely referring to the man of lawlessness that the Apostle Paul references in 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 2. The one who had set himself up against God, right? This is the person that we know as the Antichrist. And we do not know the details about this, who this person is, and we should be cautious about speculation, you know, how many politicians over the years have been accused of being the Antichrist by those of the opposite political persuasion, right? How many news headlines have been incorrectly understood as the fulfillment of some apocalyptic text? We should beware of those ditches. But exercising caution and sober judgment doesn't mean skepticism and unbelief. Here in Daniel, as well as in the letters of Paul, in the revelation to the apostle John, and even from the mouth of Jesus himself, we are warned that there will come a time of intense persecution against the church. And so we should be aware of that and we should be spiritually prepared. And there are two realities that are highlighted in this vision that God wants us to know to be prepared. And the first is that there is a promised victory. There's a promised victory. There's coming a day when the beasts will be thrown down in defeat and their dominion will be stripped away and God's people will be victorious. It says, And the kingdoms and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So those who endure in their faith will inherit the kingdom. And that is possible because of the second reality. And that is that there is a coming king. There's one coming on the clouds of heaven, 
like a son of man. You know, the beasts before were like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. But now this one comes like a son of man. That is, he's a human, an image bearer. And yet he also came on the clouds of heaven, language that is explicitly used in reference to God's divine presence. The one who came was both human and divine. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, God's people have an assured victory because we know that the king is coming. Uh, when my twin sister Jennifer and I were little, my parents took uh, a trip out of town for a week or so, and we got to stay with my grandparents. And I still remember the things that we got to do that week. I remember swimming in the, their hot tub. We must have cannonballed half the water of that hot tub out. <laughs> I still remember my grandpa having to fill that thing back up. We made a fort in their living room, uh, and my grandpa had a giant work light that we set up in the middle as a campfire, campfire, and we roasted marshmallows on it with toothpicks and little marshmallows. We sat on there for like 15 minutes until they melted. Uh, we made mud pies in the backyard during the day, and we watched Wheel of Fortune at night. Uh, it was amazing. But there's, uh, there's one memory in particular that stands out, and that was waiting for my grandpa to come home. He worked as an electrician at the local paper mill, and on his way home, he would stop at a local ice cream shop, and he would get two ice cream cones, one for my sister, one for me. And then he'd drive home with one hand, holding the ice cream cones between his fingers, you know, catching the drips and all of it. Uh, and we, we waited. He, he'd drive up in his old blue truck and get out these ice cream cones in hand, right? And so my grandma knew the time when he would come home every day. So each day she would take us out and sit on the porch, and we'd wait for him to pull up. When he pulled up in that truck, we were waiting with all this anticipation, right? When he pulled up in that truck and we, he hopped out with the ice cream cones, all was right in the world of my four-year-old life. My grandpa passed a couple years ago, and then uh, this last January, my grandma passed away. When my parents were going through and cleaning up the house, my dad sent me this picture. My dad said that my grandparents had hung this picture over their bed. <clears throat> so every day when they went to sleep, they thought about us. They thought about <clears throat> ice cream. They thought about me riding a mean broom there. <clears throat> and so it is with our Savior. We anticipate his coming. We look forward to him coming. We look forward to when he will make all things right. 
but so does he. That is his treasure. That's what he is looking forward to because he cares deeply for us. You know, when Jesus was captured and brought to stand trial before the authorities, he stood silent in the face of these false accusations, one after another. And then the high priest finally said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The religious leaders tore their robes. They spit on him. They beat him. They, they carried him off to the Romans to be crucified. After his conviction, the soldiers pressed down a crown of thorns on his head. They put a purple robe on him, mocked him. They beat him mercilessly. When Jesus came to earth the first time, it was as a suffering servant and a sacrificial lamb. He came to accomplish our salvation, to suffer in our place, to atone for our sins, to rise to new life, to inaugurate his kingdom in the hearts of his people. But when he returns, he's coming as a victorious king, bringing justice and righteousness, deliverance for all who bow to him. He will strike down those who have crushed his people. And he will raise his saints up to new and everlasting life. And with his coming, he will bring dominion and a kingdom that will never end. So how do we live until that day? Until that day comes, let us live with the hope of victory. That when it seems when the night is getting darker, we know more than ever that we are closer to daybreak. We know with confidence that the sun will rise. And so let us cast off fear and exchange it for hope. And look with eager anticipation as we wait for dawn when the light of our coming king breaks over the horizon and the darkness will flee and we will stand with him in victory. And until that day, let us live with courage from our king. Our Lord faced the threat of suffering, and when he did so, he could have been silent. He could have been spared humiliation, rejection, torture. But he spoke. He spoke the truth for your salvation. So let us join him in having courage to speak. And if we face hardship, opposition, even persecution, let us remember the words of our Lord. That in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Amen. We turn now to the Lord's table.